0: Hey, I'm Bailey I'm Michael and welcome back to facing the gates podcast uh, just as a quick update David is present just just want to let everybody know he's just not on the microphone so he's there
1: and in spirit and in body he is here
0: <laughs> right uh, so today we are interviewing father Russell who is a priest at st. James Anglican Church how are you
2: I'm doing well thank you
0: good so I guess to start off can you tell us um just give us a little bit about your background um how you ended up becoming a priest and that kind of
2: thing very good well i was raised baptist and my dad was a baptist minister he's passed away now but um actually his the church that i I grew up in was about three miles from here at healing springs which is a little north of town here and so i was a pk grew up as a preacher's kid and and I like in that my term,
1: <laughs> the PK.
2: In my uh, teens and um, young adult time, I kind of walked away from the church and I turned my back on it. And uh, I can't say I was ever a full fledged atheist or agnostic, but I, I um, just didn't see a purpose of God in my life. And so I lived that way for quite a while. And then, um, through life experiences, I found out that I made a really poor God, and that, um, and so I having that seed planted in me when as a child um, I I was drawn back to the church and I spent a good bit of time some maybe somewhat like you're doing um, visiting different churches I did that looking for where I could find a church home that clicked for me Mm -hmm. Um, and so I attended Methodist churches and I attended Baptist churches and uh, Presbyterian churches um, and then eventually uh, attended um, Episcopal Church up in Greenville at Christ Church and it was like the, the gates of heaven had opened up you know it was like wow and uh, so I started attending there and then eventually I uh, was confirmed I became a member there and I was there until I moved to Charleston uh, for work I, my background before becoming a priest is a, I'm a registered nurse and I, I worked in emergency trauma and did that for most of my career. Um, anyway, moved to to Charleston and lived out on Isle of Palms for a while and and became a church there, Church of the Holy Cross um, on Sullivan's Island, and was there, and then during that time, the this is when a lot of the liberal things were happening within the Episcopal Church, um, where they were embracing same-sex marriage and ordination of, of gays and whatnot, which goes against my personal beliefs and what i my interpretation of the bible so i felt i needed to look for another church home and as the old saying goes i, I didn't feel like i left the Episcopal church but the Episcopal church left me kind of thing okay. and so i looked around and then i found a what i was looking i kind of typed in online i'm um, kind of looking around for a conservative liturgical church liturgical meaning the way we worship with the the prayer book and whatnot, right. and I came across the Anglican church, and, okay. and I eventually um, started going to uh, an Orthodox Anglican church, and while I was there, I had found, I mean, I knew through all my years, even though I had denied it, that I, there, I felt a call to ministry, even though I was rebellious and like, <laughs> no way in the world, you know, Hades will freeze over before I ever become a preacher, you know? Yeah. Um, but... In working with the the, the people and worshiping in the in Anglican Church there I that call came stronger and stronger and finally I, I accepted it I submitted to that call and mm-hmm. then um and that there the Orthodox Anglican Church which is based in North Carolina for most of their uh, churches they have a few here in South Carolina uh, they also have a, a seminary there it was um saint andrews uh, theological college and seminary and so i enrolled there and um and finished seminary and was ordained as a deacon in 2006 and and then in 2010 i was ordained uh, a priest in 2008 in between that period of time is when i felt the you know the need to to do a church plant, so that's what we started—a church here in town, mm-hmm. an, an Anglican church—is uh, an o- opportunity for people who were maybe having not finding a church home, or or maybe not satisfied with what was going on with the Episcopal Church. So we started in a house down the street, actually, and we were there for about six months. And by that time, I had been able to meet with the Bishop Lawrence, who's the the presiding bishop of the diocese here. Um, and we came to an agreement that we could use this facility, and that we had to, this outrageous fee of $1 a year that we had to pay as long as we did the maintenance and kept it up and kept insurance on it that it was ours to use. Yeah. And so we were there until about four years, and then we became part of the diocese. Um, and that's kind of been my journey in a nutshell to becoming a priest. Yeah. And I can say that once I did accept that call, it's like this— Peace came over me, like you know, and this kind of weight went off of this that I felt. You know, was, you know that God, you know, kind of saying you need to do this, and mm-hmm. and it's been a, a really enjoyable learning experience. Has been a great journey uh, during this time.
0: Yeah, there was a couple things I picked up from that. Um, one was you said you made a very terrible guide when you were kind of running away for a while. Were you referring to, like, you making yourself kind of your own God in a way? Yeah, I was
2: in charge of my life. I made—I determined my fate. I, you know, (laughs) I did my will, you know, Mm -hmm. and how I wanted to do things.
0: Yeah, we—I think we had an episode where we talked about something like that, kind of similar. Yeah, where if
1: there's uh, not a uh, omniscient God or Mm. obviously a higher power, then usually someone will put something else in that place, like science— light politics mm-hmm. or themselves, or their earthly wants and needs.
2: Yeah. Your pleasures. Yeah. Um <laughs> Of various sorts. Yeah.
1: So
0: the other thing I, I picked up on was you were kind of picking out differences between the Episcopal church and the Anglican church. And we'll probably talk about that more in, in uh, one of the future questions because it's, it's kind of confusing historically, like it's the same thing, but it's not. And but yeah, we'll we'll probably yeah. draw more out okay. of that later. Um, one thing
1: ahead. I've noticed with speaking with all the other preachers is I've noticed that a lot of them have turned away from the church at one point, but they couldn't resist that calling to something greater than themselves or yeah. something higher. And that's one thing I've noticed with a lot of these interviews is yeah. a good portion of them have. Now there are some that always kind of new, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it's... If you got that call, and yeah, you're gonna follow it.
0: Yeah, it's never been a straightforward it's, like It's coming, kicking and screaming.
1: Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, you might um, want to take a left, but uh, it, car's going right. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Um, so, in in previous episodes, we've discussed um, from more of like a philosophical perspective arguments for God, um, evidence for Christianity, like the resurrection and reliability of the New Testament. And then we've also talked about um, some of the the more, uh, I think, the air quotes good objections to Christianity, which we've all kind of decided weren't really all that good. But um, basically up to this point, we've talked about um, reasons to believe or not to believe. Um, so with the next question is, let's say we have accepted that Christianity is true. We've gotten to that point. Um, why ought a Christian go to church, or why should anyone go to church? What where's where's kind of the role of
2: that in someone's life? I think it's it's absolutely important, you know. In fact, um, I just wanted to quote a couple of things here. Uh, first, if I want to say is that this is a basically an imperative that was given to us by Christ that we are to to come together in, as a body and. To, uh, believers, and we do that for several reasons. First and foremost, to worship God, and secondly, um, to to come together in, in a way in which we can corporately do this. We can lift up prayers. We can edify each other. We can lift each other up. We can um, be there for each other. Um, sometimes when a person is struggling and whatnot, you're there to help them out, to 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 assist them, to pray for them, to encourage them. Sometimes to correct. Mm-hmm. You know, if you see somebody going off the rails, you can kind of lovingly kind of nudge them
0: in the right direction, get them back on yeah
2: uh and also Jesus gave us a promise that where there are two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be also, and if you're just worshipping by yourself, then you haven't met the quota. <laughs> the quorum has not been met right and um so th- those are you know some of the reasons um it's just a time, and for us it's a time to to also be um with, through communion to be able to um to have a interaction with christ spiritually mm-hmm. through the receiving of the uh, we can i know get into that a little bit more but in getting uh, receiving his body and blood through the bread and the wine mm-hmm. and uh, and then you're also there to to be taught through scripture you're into through the through the preaching of the sermon to to worship and praise through the singing of hymns um, and and so forth so it it, it there's a lot of good to be done plus the other thing is coming to church we as a body are able to maybe provide for others that we maybe would not be able to have the financial wherewithal to do ourselves but coming together and pooling our resources then we can reach out and minister to the community so these are reasons for you know doing that okay. um dwight l mudia who's a, a famous uh, Preacher, said, Church attendance is as vital to a disciple as a transfusion of rich, healthy blood is to a sick man. Through G- uh, th- though true Christianity uniquely involves a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it also is a corporate experience. Christians cannot grow spiritually as they ought to in isolation from one another. And then J.C. Ryle, which is one of my big heroes, he was an Anglican bishop in England, Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1800s, and I, I draw from his writings and, and his commentaries quite a bit, and um, that he says it must not content us to make our, to take our bodies to church if we leave our hearts at home. So, when you go, you go ready to receive, ready to share, ready to praise and worship, mm-hmm. and you know. And then there's there's also numerous scriptures that we can um, that we can uh, look at. Um, in doing this. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11 it says, Therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. And so to be able to do that you have to come together. And we also in Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And part of that has to do with Jesus was asked by the Pharisees at one time, what were the two greatest commandments? Or what was the greatest commandment? And they were talking about the Ten Commandments. And and he knew that they were they were trying to catch him and trap him, which that seemed to be their game it was to to try to find something wrong so they could you know get rid of him, uh, which they eventually did. But um, but he said the two greatest commandments was first to to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second is likened to it to love thy neighbor as thyself. Mm-hmm. On those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That was a quote from Jesus Christ. And and so to be able to do that we have to come together. And then in Ecclesiastes, which Solomon uh, was reported to have written this, King Solomon, two are better off than one because together they can work more effectively. And then in Romans from St. Paul we have, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. And he goes on from that passage to describe the different spiritual gifts that are given. So each person has unique spiritual gifts. Everyone has spiritual gifts, whether it's doing a podcast, whether it's being able to... Handle technology to be able to work. To some people, their their spiritual gift is hospitality. Some it's teaching. Some it's preaching. Some it's singing. It's all these different gifts. So, one person doesn't possess them all. Right. So, but if you have everybody coming together and worshiping together, like a society, you put your parts together, yeah, and you got a whole body. So those are the kind of things that we look at. um Is why it's necessary for church. One. It just makes you a better person, mm-hmm. and and you, it fills some, an emptiness that, that that we need. And the last thing I'll say on this is that you know, when God created the world, on the seventh day, He rested, and so the seventh day is our day that we're supposed to rest and worship. We're not supposed to be working or anything. We're supposed to just have that time, for these, and that has been traditionally part of, of. Of that so to be able to do that is coming together as a body of believers
0: okay yeah that was that was a good answer because I think I think a benefit of asking we're we're asking basically all the pastors we interview the same questions so I think uh, another benefit of that is while you can get the differences in in certain groups you can also get Uh, a cumulative answer that is much more fully orbed so this question that the answers that other pastors may have given some of them may have been the same some of them might have been different but it's not an either or type response you can have more responses that build a more fully fleshed out answer as to why to go to church and I think that's been definitely beneficial when you take all of what everyone has said and
2: you know it, it works together yeah, yeah. And one one last thing being involved in a church and being part of a church family you're never alone you got someone that you regardless of what's going on in your life if you're at a point of crisis sadness bereavement loss or whatever you got somebody really available
1: that mm-hmm. you can
2: call up and say hey it's there for you you know christ promises he's with us always even to the end of the earth but his followers are his body of Christ on earth, his, rep- his representatives on earth. So if you're not connected with that and you have this, something going on in your life when you need somebody or some other, you've got that ready resource. And that's another bonus mm-hmm. for that.
0: Yeah. It has a it has a practical utilitarian use, but it also has it fulfills spiritual needs as well at the same time. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I think each of the answers kinda of like how you build a house, there's different assets that you put together to make something greater than each individual answer.
2: Yeah. So, yeah. With a strong foundation. Yes. Right.
1: So to kind of branch off from that, what is the itinerary for your average church service here?
2: Okay. Um and by itinerary you mean basically the order of worship yes, right, sir. that we mm-hmm. follow. Well, we start with a welcome and announcements and um and prayer requests in and, and in making note of specific prayer requests that people have asked to be to be brought out. And then also to make you know, that maybe somebody has an unspoken request, something that they're they're dealing with, but they really don't want to publicize it. So, but they're asking people just to pray for them for whatever that may be. God knows what it is. I don't have to know. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so but we start with that. And then we have a hymn of praise, and this begins our service. And traditionally, um, we've been kind of modified this year because of COVID and dis- social distancing. But typically, what we do is we have I have someone with me, and they we start at the entrance of the church and come in, and they proceed ahead of me with the cross. And I'm behind them, and while we're singing, and then we I process up to the altar area and and then once we've done that and the hymn is over, then we begin our service, and um, we start with the prayer book.
0: He's passing us the prayer books in, in case anybody doesn't know uh, what's happening
2: <coughs> okay. I should have brought a fourth one. I'm sorry. Just that's all right. But um, well, oh, I, I grabbed a hymnal instead. <laughs> you got the hymnal too, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, you got the prayer book. Let me just use it for <laughs> a minute. I'm sorry. Oh, it's all right. <laughs> it's okay. Anyway, we start. We have an order of worship that we use for the, And this is what the main one of the things we use with the prayer book. And so, and it starts with the Holy Communion right here. Okay, that's a, that's what we call our service on Sunday is Holy Communion, and we open up with a collect, which is a prayer, and so we do we have this prayer, and then we do a, either we do the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments, or we do the summary of the law, which is what I said a while ago, that Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, and mind, and this and this is the first great commandment. The second is likened to it. So we finish that, and then we have like a responsive from that, which is Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Kind of a, I say the first part, the people say the second part and I say the third part. Okay. And then I do another prayer. And then once we've done that, then we do what's called the collect or the prayer of the day, which is we have a different one for each Sunday. And once that's done, then we um, we have the readings of our lessons, which are our, our Bible readings. And the first one we have is our Old Testament reading. Mm-hmm. And then, so, well, so one of the, the uh, congregants will come up and read the old testament lesson and then together we do the a psalm and then someone will come up and read an epistle lesson okay like from anywhere from romans you know through uh, you know galatians ephesians colossians philippians all whatever it is for that sunday and it changes each sunday mm-hmm. and then once they finish then i read the gospel lesson and once we finish the gospel lesson then I have the sermon, and after the sermon, then we um, th- then that's when we go into the communion part. We've we've had our teachings, we've had our preaching, and then we have um, our we go to communion, and then we begin our communion part where we first have an opportunity for people to for their ties and offerings to be presented, mm-hmm. and then we have prayers uh, for the church. And for the leaders of the church and for the people and for our our governor government government leaders and any specifically um, um, needs of the people and then any people who have passed away um, prayers for them and and then after that then we go um, have a, a praise and then we get into communion where we do the lord's prayer and and then I, then i distribute the The bread and then the wine after that Mm -hmm. and then we finish we have a a praise it's called the glory and excelsis where it's a it's an old ancient chant or hymn that we do Mm -hmm. and then when that's finished we have a prayer benediction and then we have a last recessional hymn which is sung and then we I walk back to the entrance of the church and then give um, the final benediction okay and that's our service Okay. Gotcha. So it's, you do, you It's do, very Bible focused. Gotcha. You do communion
0: every week. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you, I think you mentioned earlier before we started recording that it is for anyone who is a Christian. You don't have to Bap- be
2: baptized Baptized
0: Christian. Right. Okay. So it, you don't have to, you're not exclusivist. You don't have to be baptized in the Anglican
2: church. No. If you've been baptized and you baptize in the name of the father, son, and Holy ghost, And you have a belief in Jesus Christ, and we have an opportunity before we receive communion that we all have a a chance for confession of our sins. Mm -hmm. It's a corporate confession. It's not like you stand up by yourself and say, "This is what I did this week." You know, but that we all say, you know, for that we uh, we're hardly sorry for our sins, and we ask forgiveness of those. And it's supposed to be done with um, with sincerity. Mm -hmm. And then once that's done, then I, I I announce. Not that I'm forgiving their sins, but that Jesus has promised that if you have confessed your sins and if you've done it with a broken and contrite heart, that you're very sorrowful, then He has promised that He has forgiven your sins. And once that's done, then we do the distribution.
1: Okay. All right. All righty.
2: And hey. let me say real quick, the reason I say that you have to be baptized in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that there are a couple of, of, of different religions that do not do that. Mm-hmm. they do not acknowledge the trinity uh for whatever reason um
0: yeah i know, I know what you, and what so you referencing. those would not be
2: <laughs> eligible to come but okay. i'm not going to stand up there and question somebody you know let me see your baptismal card you know yeah uh, <laughs> i take it that on good faith that this is the honor system that you right. you know yeah okay
1: all righty and for our next question i see that we're in a small town area so what is the place of your church within the community here
2: for for the anglican church here this is typically a a baptist as you see the large uh, structure across the street from us it's basically you know baptocentric community Mm -hmm. so we're still somewhat even though we've been here for since 2008 we're still somewhat of an enigma you know um but we we try to be you know involved in the community um and we've done different outreaches and whatnot uh but for the most part i think we're still making inroads in into the community that we're you know we're not some you know off the rails you know sect of some sort who's you know bab- you know s- sacrificing babies or anything else like that so right and sometimes i think people think you know that uh You know, we're some kind of strange entity, but in actuality, the Anglican church, if you look at the history of the church, and it precedes Henry, by the way, um, is very, very ancient. It's one of the oldest churches, and I can explain that in a little bit. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's one thing I have noticed being in this area of the South is it is heavily Baptist and more kind of emotional versions of Christianity mm-hmm. where they can be a little less bible focused and more emotionally focused.
0: Yeah, I think they there are certain types of people in here that kind of have an aversion to anything that's even remotely catholic just because it's catholic because they're scared of the, the the
1: dirty catholics they're terrifying. Yeah.
2: Apparently. The papist. yeah. Those papists. And
1: yeah. uh, I, I know a so lot liturgical of liturgical
0: people- churches like Anglicans and Lutherans can probably scare some of those that people away, and
1: but. i know a lot of people would shy away from a more formal type of procession yeah whereas with the baptists it's more kind of casual right in yeah. some aspects especially with the more mega churches oh yeah definitely
0: definitely with the mega churches they're like no offense but there's like no formality at all right
2: that's very contemporary yeah it's not quite my cup of tea but um, as yeah. long as they're worshiping in spirit and truth, that's the key, the key thing. Mm-hmm. But one thing I will point out, you mentioned about the predominantly Baptist, almost all our members are formal Baptist. Um, and as the old saying goes, Baptists make great Anglicans. <laughs> but once they get through the doors and they see the service, you know, they're like, yeah. And it's like the, the communion, the liturgical part of it fills this emptiness, this void that they had always felt. Maybe mm-hmm. if they didn't realize, it, but they felt, and then once they get it, they they see that's much more a wholeness mm-hmm. of the worship, you know, and, uh, and that you're being fed, yeah, more fully. Yeah, that's interesting to see, like
0: the diff. Well, it's interesting to see the differences between each group on an individual level, but it's also interesting to see like a lot some of a lot of the churches we have been to, um, have been people who have converted from one. Type of Christianity to another type, mm-hmm. and seeing why they prefer the one that they've switched to is is interesting all right um i'll let I'll let Michael do this next one
1: all right so how is your church governed?
2: Okay that's a good question. Um, the governance of the church is is called an episcopate it's not to be it doesn't mean the same thing. As Episcopal, like the which was the Protestant Episcopal Church of, of North America, United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Episcopate means that you have a hierarchy, and the hierarchy is that you have a bishop, and then you have the priest, and then you have the deacons, and then you have the laity, and all the churches within the diocese, which is the group of churches, which is that our mm-hmm. body within geographically. Which is from below Columbia to the coast, okay. um, are all the bishops' churches. he's, right. he's the pastor. You got, so you have one bishop for roughly how many churches? We have fifty-three, I believe it is right now. They, okay. they've been adding more, so I may be off on that number. Okay, because uh, we still, it's very Anglicanism is very alive. Okay, it's, while a lot of the do- denominations are are diminishing, mm-hmm. um, it Anglican church is growing. It's part of the Anglican Church in North America. It's it's basically exploding, and which is a wonderful thing. Yeah, um, yeah. But so we have the bishop, and then in some maybe larger diocese, you may have like associate, um, what we called suffragan bishops. Those are the ones who are like the assistant bishops to the to the presiding bishop. Mm-hmm. But so he has those churches, and then each church or parish has a priest. And then, um, and then some will um, also have deacons. At the moment, we do not have a deacon here. Um, and then we have the lay people, and the, and then each church, each parish or church has a vestry, which is somewhat like the board of deacons. In some churches, are elders, in other churches, and they are the ones who are elected by the congregation to serve in the management of the of the of the parish. And uh, they have different roles, whether it's you know the 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 business of the church, you know, handling the you know taxes, handling the repair and maintenance of the buildings and property and whatnot. And so they have different roles in that. Um, but the so that's pretty much how it sets up there. Okay. And and one of the things that's good about that is that the it gives the priest. He can't he doesn't serve at the whim of the people It's like, you know, the the people here decided they they want a new one. They can't just off me and say yeah There's a door, you know, like you can in some churches, you know The Baptist churches and some of the other uh, churches Mm -hmm. that you serve basically at the pleasure of the people Um, I basically serve at the pleasure of the bishop
0: Okay, so is the I assume there are several bishops in America Oh, many, um,
2: there's a House of Bishops.
0: Okay, so are they? Do they have like a, a place where they're reporting also? Yeah,
2: then and then I, forgot, I left out this part. The and within the so our diocese is part of many dioceses within the the Anglican Church in North America, and then there is a presiding bishop who's the arch, archbishop, and his name is Archbishop Archbishop Foley Beach, and okay. I always kidding. It sounds like Foley Beach, you know. Yeah but um, but he's the presiding and he's elected by the college of bishops and he serves a peer a term as the presiding bishop okay i got and you and he's referred to as the arch archbishop bishop, right and so that's for the you know, and that covers the united states canada south america and some aspects in africa okay so it's bigger than just the us yeah even in cuba we okay. have presence there hmm. Okay, cool. Which is typically considered, you know, a non-religious atheist country, mm-hmm. you know, by the government, but it's right. still a very live and growing church there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kind of parallel to Russia and the Russian Orthodox movement within there.
2: Yeah.
0: So I think, um, one of the most, uh, if anybody knows anything about Anglicanism, they think, um, that it's basically, it came about because Henry the king, king wanted a divorce, um, Whereas like the rest of the Protestant movements were uh, more ground up, like the reformers were kind of rebelling against the Catholic Church. Um, The Anglican Church was more of a top-down thing with King Henry wanting a divorce and then establishing a new church. So how give give us a quick history lesson on how the Anglican Church formed. And then I guess as an extension of that question, how it came to America and how this is probably a bigger question, but some of the differences between the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church in America, because I do think that gets a little confusing mm-hmm. for some people.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. To start at the beginning, the what we have is the Anglican Church, the presence of the Church of England. Mm-hmm. Actually, when Christianity was first going out, when the early first century church, there were um missionaries or apostles and disciples um, who went to the, to the british isles and and the first ones there had set up and it's believed that joseph of arimathea who was the one who provided the tomb for jesus mm-hmm. he was also a businessman and he he bought and traded in tin and the, the tin mines were in the great tent resources of tin was in england mm-hmm. And so in him being a Christian, he was able to, it's believed, bring that influence in, and they are established. And so for a while, there was this Celtic church, Celtic Christian church there, who was, you know, um, working with the the natives, the, the the Druids and the the Celts and a lot of the <laughs> Picts and a lot of these other groups and converting them to Christianity. And then about 400 years into it, about... the you had the Roman Catholic Church coming in, so for a while you had in England you had both Celtic churches, Christian churches, and you had Roman Catholic Christian churches. And in the first, like first up until zero 10, to 400 or so, until 1066 was it when uh, when um, I think it's 1054. The Normans, the Normans conquered. Okay. okay. The Normans conquered England. Remember the. The, defeated the Saxons okay and and um, William the Conqueror who was mm-hmm. the leader of the Normans uh, was very well um, invested in the Roman Church he he and the Pope were you know, tight and the Pope was providing a lot of funds and wherewithal for him to be able to to um, to establish his um, conquest of Great Britain mm-hmm. so the with him coming in, he gave the, the Celtic church, the, the priest and the followers of that church a choice. They could either become part of the Roman church or you die. It's All your right. choice. All right. So anyway, so the church was basically absorbed into the Roman Catholic Church and it was a Catholic Roman Catholic nation. And but there was always this friction in there through mm-hmm. the years of, of and a lot of it had to do with the church leaders um concerned with with some of the ideations or ideology that the the roman church had such as purgatory which the anglican church considers anathema considers it to be absolutely unbiblical and wrong it's not you know uh it it puts restrictions on the saving grace that we get through you know through jesus christ and through his sacrifice on the cross you don't have to go work your time off to get to heaven either you're saved or you're lost it's not is not a a temporary place to work off your sins your sins are either forgiven or they're not forgiven that was one of the issues they had the other had to do with selling of indulgences and the roman church was making a fortune off of people that they would pay to have their sins or maybe a loved one who had died they would get them buy them out of hell through these indulgences and so the the, yeah. the church leaders were very vocal about that, and 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 so there was a you know Cramner and and Hooker and some of the other um, the the leaders and the church there were you know very much wanting to get away from that and to have purely biblical practice and belief, and then you had with Henry where he come oh the, one other thing with the with the um, the church leaders, it had to do with the concept of, of of communion, and I think we're going to talk about it a little bit more in a minute, but um, there's a term called transubstantiation versus consubstantiation. Transubstantiation is the belief that the Roman Catholic Church has that the body the, the bread and the wine become the literal physical body and blood of Christ, mm-hmm. so that when you take that piece of bread in your mouth, you're literally taking the the flesh into your body and when you drink the wine you're literally drinking his blood which we don't find that's contrary to scripture as well our the title we have for our type of what we believe is consubstantiation that spiritually yes it is the body and blood of christ physically it's bread and wine it doesn't mysteriously become flesh and blood but it spiritually is the presence of christ through the body and through the bread and the wine Okay. Those, so those were a couple of issues. And then Henry was chafing at the fact of how much money he's having to fork over to Rome. These heavy taxations and levies that the Pope was placing on England. You know, Henry was the absolute autocrat. I mean, you lived and you died by his word. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't like somebody else telling him what to do. And so he was chafing against that. He was also a very strong... Um, Catholic and he never quit being a Catholic even though he was um, excommunicated but but his thing was not necessarily to split from the church it was that he did not want the Pope telling him what to do and having to spend all this send all this money to Rome and so those were the things that would do it and then we get to this this deal about the the divorce he could not get a a male heir through Catherine. Who was his first wife and her brother i believe it was correct me if i'm wrong was philip the king of spain okay and I'm he was sure, tight so. he was tight with rome okay <clears throat> and so you know philip's putting pressure on the, the pope to not annul the marriage and that's all that's all that henry wanted was them to annul the marriage so that he could marry someone who could give him a male heir because mm-hmm. catherine had not been able to do that She'd only been able to give one live birth, and that was uh, Mary. And um, so finally, he just finally said, okay, we're done. And and that's when he cut, you know, split with, with Rome. Okay. okay. So there were a lot of factors of that. And yeah, there, there's a there lot was of... one other thing, let me say real quick. Okay, the if... one other thing that Rome was insistent that the that the scripture and the worship services and everything be done in Latin now, how many of the English people do you think knew Latin? Probably not many. Not, sometimes not even the, some of the clergy knew it. You know, wow. these were just guys who, it's not like a good job opportunity. You get three, you know, three hots in a cot, you know, some clothes to wear, a place to live. And, and as far as their education and training, they had none. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the other thing that was the push by England was that we wanted the, the Scriptures to be in the common tongue we want what's called the vulgar tongue vulgar in that term does not mean profane it just means the the common language yeah and so that was the other thing that was a push is that the the anglican church wanted the english church wanted the people to be able to read and understand scripture whereas the position was the from rome was that that should be the the priest should be doing that and the people didn't need to be bothered with it well you can tell me what happens if if you're not able to have access to the information, you can be told anything they want to tell you. Yeah. And you won't know whether it's true or not. Right. So that was another reason why it was important for the people to be able to have this common language Bible that they could read, that they could understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those were some of the factors of what led to this split. Gotcha. Then, so, you know, and it kind of shifted back and forth. After Henry died, you had Edward was the, king for short lived he was very ill so he only lived for a few years and he died then Mary took the throne and she was commonly lovingly called Bloody Mary because she was doing a whole lot of you know beheading people and burning people at the stake because they would not go back to the Roman church mm-hmm. and so a lot of the, the priests the bishops and whatnot, um and, and the doctors of the church uh, were done away with and then she died and then um, Henry's heir Elizabeth took the throne and then she pretty much was very tolerant that she allowed the, those who wanted to be Roman Catholic to be Roman Catholic and those to be Church of England to be Church of England. She was Church of England but she was pretty progressive in that that she allowed people to, to have a choice of how they would worship.
0: Right. It wasn't a national...
2: It was a national church but still people who okay. stuck with rome were not going to be you know burned at the stake or beheaded or anything they you know and so and then so she was able to to do that and then the church continued on is the church of england from that point in time yeah and then i think you said your next how did it end up in the united states well yeah. most of the colonies that were established were from what country england england yeah and so trying to get
0: away from England, so we can't name our Church of England.
2: Well, it was the Church of England until the Revolutionary War. Okay. But, you know, for those years that it was British colonies, Mm -hmm. you know, you had everything with British influence. Now, there were a few colonies that were separate, like Maryland was basically, um, you know, um, a separate. It was more Protestant-type colony. Mm -hmm. And then you had... um, I forgot which there was another was like a Catholic enclave, but anyway, most of the colonies were British colonies, and they were set up with the um and then you had up in New England you had the puritans who who broke off from the church, who were up in like in Massachusetts and maine and that area um, but for the most part Eng, um, virginia uh, south carolina North Carolina, all those colonies were were Church of England i mean that was the predominant church, it was the official church mm-hmm. and you were required. To go to church, it was not an option. Whether you believed or not, you could be arrested and put in jail if you did not go to church. So attendance was taken. Ah. And then, um, at the then at the time of the Revolutionary War, we could not still have the Church of England because the Church of England's you had um, the the the, the um, Archbishop of Canterbury was the the. clerical leader of the church and then the the secular leader of the church was the monarch whether it was the king or the queen well if we were no longer a british colony but a separate state you know united states we couldn't have as part of that church of england being the monarch is the head of our church right so that's where it split so it became the protestant episcopal church of the united states okay and um and and that's where we progressed. And then, so it pretty much it was the Episcopal Church, which was the American version of the Church of England with some changes right. instead of having the presiding bishop being the Bishop of Canterbury. You, the House of Bishops in in the United States elected their own presiding bishop. And there was no cler- secular head of the church. You know, we were not the official church of the United States because every there's you know, lots of them. There were every church was you know freedom of worship you could be whatever right. church you wanted. Yeah. So those were the kind of things but still the order of worship, the way we worship, the liturgical practice, the use of the prayer books, all this is if I went to a church in England and sat down in the pew, I'd feel right at home. Right. The version of their prayer book might be slightly different, but for I would say 95% of it would be identical to what I'm I'm used to using and the order of worship would be the same okay and then the anglican church the resurgence of the anglican church happened um during the late 50s early 60s there started being this this movement away from you know the, of kind of be trying to be more politically correct trying to to be um fit in with society and and so there were a lot of um Bishops and whatnot. Some who even denied the existence of God. Some who denied the virgin birth. Some who denied uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But yet, they still served as bishops in the church, which I I just find unbelievable.
1: Yeah, Uh, those are kind of some of the core aspects of Christianity. Yeah, Yeah. I
2: mean, they, you know, but yet they started introducing this, this. You know unchristian unbiblical um doctrines into the church, and so it eventually led to to them walking away from the bible and and reinterpreting things as they wanted to interpret them and which is you know and if you read in scripture there you know there's a passage that says that that man will always want to have their ears tickled instead of hearing the truth they want to hear what's pleasing mm-hmm. so if I'm not doing what the Bible says I should do. Then it's awfully nice to have somebody come along and say, "Oh, you're fine, you're fine, you know. All dogs go to heaven. Don't worry about it. You know, yeah. uh, you can do what you want to do." And that started this, this schism that right. developed, and it was a real struggle. I mean, there were people who, I mean, some priests. Um, I was not personally affected by it because of me kind of come late coming in, but a lot of them had to make a decision, and if they left the Episcopal Church, they were losing their all their retirement. All the things that had built up you know for and so there there was they had to make a hard decisions on what to do um but the eventual it was when it came down to when the episcopal church ordained a practicing homosexual bishop gene robinson that was that started to fracture me big time, you know, where the church, the diocese and parishes started leaving. Mm-hmm. And then when they started embracing and that uh, same-sex marriage, that further split. And um, and then a lot of the, the, the things that were coming out, um, and their presiding bishop at one time, Jeffrey Shorey, was, you know, saying that you couldn't put God in a box, that, you know, he's not limited to just Christianity, you know, as far as Jesus being the only way to salvation. That was their presiding bishop saying that. So that was when it was like, you know, the ones, they were like, okay, we're done. Yeah, And so this is where we, it was a desire to go back to what scripture was teaching, what Jesus Christ taught, what we had in our traditions and in our history and going back and re-embracing and and re-emphasizing those principles. Not that we are any better than anybody else, but that we have to be true to the faith but everyone is a sinner i'm a sinner everyone's a sinner. so we're to love all people we're not to love the sin but we're to love the sinner, mm-hmm. just as jesus christ did you saw if you read you see where he who he hung out with he hung out with you know with thieves he hung out with prostitutes he hung out with tax collectors who were some of the biggest crooks back in, in at that time uh, all these people people with leprosy who were just, you know, completely uh, um, isolated from the rest of society, he interacted with those people, mentally ill people, all these people. Um, it, it made no difference to mm-hmm. him. He loved people, and he was there for people, and he died for people. He died for everyone, not just the ones who are on my club and my team. But right. he, he, he gave that sacrifice of himself that all could come to him and come be saved. And so what we're saying is that we can't embrace things that are contrary to scripture, and we can't condone those behaviors and practices, but that doesn't mean that we don't love people, we don't care for people, and we don't pray for people we do and we all we want them to do is come to accept Christ as savior and in so doing, you know um you know and because if someone has same sex desires or whatnot it's the same jesus christ was tempted he never sinned but he himself was tempted and it's the same for us that if you have someone who has same-sex desires which is contrary to scripture and which god says is an abomination does not mean that that person would necessarily die and go to hell if they don't act on those those impulses It's the same as an alcoholic if you if you are an alcoholic and you choose to not drink that doesn't mean that you can't be You know, forgiven or, you know, it's just you have temptations, you resist those temptations and you stay true to to what the scripture says for us to do. Mm -hmm. And that goes for everything, whether, and that's what the Ten Commandments covers. It covers everything from the relationship with God to respecting your parents, to not wanting what other people have, to not having hate and animosity in your heart, to do all these things that you are first and foremost to love God and love man.
0: Gotcha. There's, was two things, um, that I picked up. Number one is when you have these schisms within Christianity and new groups are being formed. Um, a lot of times we try and focus on one specific aspect of it. Like, Oh, it was these theological things that were changed or, or were disagreed upon. But there's oftentimes multiple moving parts. So sometimes it's political, you know, sometimes it's economic. Right. There's a lot of moving components in why different groups split off and do their own thing. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, I think, probably the the easier way to, or the, the simple way of talking about the differences between The American Anglican Church and the American Episcopal Church is the Episcopal Church is more theologically liberal, whereas the Anglican Church is more theologically conservative. And that's kind of something we we've talked about. Me and Michael have talked about, um, but we haven't talked about on the podcast, which we may kind of go into that in future episodes, kind of discussing what those terms mean and stuff. Um, But yeah. Did you have any, any comments about that? Because there was a lot of good history there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Very informative. But the one thing that I am, even as an agnostic theist, trying to wrap my head, how do you have Christianity without Christ?
2: You it, don't. You don't. That, that's I, why who, I'm— I think— Who was the first Christian? I don't,
1: yeah.
0: See, that's that's why I'm— Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's why I'm very critical of so called progressive Christianity, because it's to me, it looks like it's it's trying far more to be uh to fit in politically than to actually be Christian. And you see that with a lot of the core Christian doctrines that everyone has believed throughout pretty much all centuries, is suddenly being changed because of cultural reasons. Mm. And so that's why I'm definitely very hesitant of those kinds of churches. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, I think if, if the progressives were correct in their beliefs, <clears throat> I think the world would be a whole lot better place than it is, but it seems that we are not. That, that you know, people that are inve- embracing that progressivism in whatever uh, culturally, religiously, uh, government, it has done nothing but led to the, to the denigration of this country. You know, crime is rampant. Bigotry is rampant. Um all these things are happening and and it used to not be that way, you know. And and it's be, and pr- pretty much the you know, what my absolute belief is is because of the abandonment of God. And if you want to you like history, you said, the the Bible is an excellent history book on what happens to nations when they turn away from God.
1: Mhm.
2: You know, nations that are embrace God and and follow God and are obedient to Him and faithful to Him, they prosper in all aspects, in the quality of life, economically, politically, you know, in all these aspects they prosper. But when they turn away from God, and as 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 the saying goes, and His hand is lifted from them, that providential care and protection is lifted from them, they start to fall apart and they basically collapse and you know uh, without sound like a doomsdayer I think that's the way our country's headed now you know Lenin said back in the time during the time of the Rus- Russian Revolution that that the United States would never be defeated militarily that it would be like a, a tree with overripe right fruit that would just be plucked in other words, we do pretty much similar happening would be the same as what happened to Rome. The Roman Empire was the greatest empire in the world at that time. Mm-hmm. It, it covered pretty much the known world. It was not defeated by an outside force. It rotted out from the core because of exactly the kind of things that you're seeing happening in our country, where they you know, the government's excuse me, but the government is trying to placate, feed and entertain people. And that's what Rome did to their detriment. And they eventually just imploded. And it's, and it's that turning away from God and, and, and his precepts and his teachings that will usually cause that to happen to a nation. Yeah. Okay,
0: so I have heard certain Anglicans say we're Catholic. I've heard certain Anglicans say, we're Protestant. So are you Catholic or Protestant? Yes. Okay. <laughs> cool. That, that <laughs> clears it up.
2: We we are... The term I use, is, or a lot of use, is Anglo-Catholic. Okay. Um, Catholic is, is a word that does not necessarily mean <coughs> Roman Church. Right. Catholic see means little, see. general. All right. It means church worldwide body yeah. of, of christ mm-hmm. in that term of, of catholic um we are protestant in the fact that we protested against some of the things that we discussed mm-hmm. about the, the roman church but we're kind of in between typically most protestant churches and the roman church i mean i have friends and i've had people from the who are Roman Catholic who come and worshiped with us. And they were like, wow, this, this sounds familiar, you know, and they could just follow right along, you know, right. uh, with us. Um, cause a lot of the Catholic churches now use English language in their service. they they have a few that do in Latin, but for the most part, most of their services are in, in English. So they were, they were able to follow. So there is, there's influences in both areas for us. Um, you know, I consider myself an Orthodox Anglican, uh, which is, it might sound like a, a pompous term, but it, it just mainly means right thinking and right believing, and meaning that I, I, my theology is based on Scripture. It's not on Russ Reed, you know, and because, uh, I mean, if I could, if I was to try to make, develop my own theology, I'd be in a mess. Uh, so... By staying true to to interpretations of Scripture, and what we look at, um, typically in Anglicanism, it's it's like a three-legged stool. It's based on um, Holy Scripture. It's based on traditions. If we look at the history of the Church, the early Church Fathers and their writings of the apostles and of um, and people who followed after them, uh, you know, then we. We, those gives us a bedrock and a and a foundation for our faith, and then the third, and this is something that some denominations do not encourage, is the third leg is reason. Use your head. Think about it. Don't be afraid to ask questions. That's one of the things I, I have found with some of the people who come in to the Anglican Church, is that they were like almost a apolog- I, 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 I'd I like to ask a question, but is that, is that okay? And I said, sure. You know, how are you going to know unless you ask? I said, you know, if something doesn't make sense, let's talk about it. Think about it. Use your mind. It's not like, you know, you're programmed automaton, you know, God gave you a brain, use it. And, you know, Jesus was in a lot of dialogues with people and, and them asking questions and him teaching and explaining uh, things to them so th- these are the three st- legs of that stool of ancanism of, of the holy scripture first and foremost as the word of god inspired word of god to those who were there at the beginning those who were set at the feet of jesus and were taught and in their followers who who were able to Sometimes shift uh, sift between some of the things that were being thrown out there, because there were a lot of people who were who were doing who were writing things that were incorrect and they were making up things, and so they had to spend a lot of time in looking and making sure that what we have now as our Bible is correct, it is the inspired word of God, and that came through a lot of work, a lot of prayer, a lot of discussion and and uh, among these very learned individuals, and so we have that, and then the third, like I said, use your mind don't just blankly blindly sit there if you don't understand, ask a question It's the same as if you were in class in school, you know you're encouraged to ask questions, you know to challenge your teacher, and that i i I like that when people you know want to 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 get into a discussion. I mean it's not putting me on the defensive it's just I'm excited about the fact that they, they're wanting to know and understand mm-hmm. and uh, and to get clarification I don't want them to misunderstand something right. and so that's the, the three legs that we have so the answer your question are we Catholic or Protestant and my question my answer goes back to yes
0: alright yeah, that's a good answer so what is the book of common prayer and why use it
2: okay the Book of Common Prayer is is not a replacement for the Bible. What it is is uh, it's like it's like the handbook that goes with it. It's what we use as our tool for worship, and it covers our daily worship. I mean, our Holy Communion that we do. Um, on Sundays, it also covers our daily worship where we have morning prayer, evening prayer that you can do, and it gives you a guideline to follow and you can do that in the church or you can do it at home with your family and devotions for that it also covers services for for um, for um, baptisms for adult baptism for infant baptism for um, marriage for those who are sick, those who are dying. It gives you a guideline that people can follow as part of the corporate worship because we're worshiping together Mm -hmm. so that we speak as a voice. We have this tool that we use um, that we can follow along in our, with our, whatever service we're doing. Um, And then also there's in there, there's um, the Psalms that we have that we use each Sunday. Um, It has the guide of what lessons to follow. It gives you like a study plan of, of lessons for each day um, in the morning and the evening and then um, and whatnot, and for special occasions, so it's kind of a very useful tool that helps us for that and then there are very there are different versions of the of the um, prayer book. The first was written by Thomas Cramner who was the archbishop um, um, during the time of all the unrest in England. He ended up losing his life because of his his beliefs that he stood for. Um, and then there have been several versions. Right now, our church uses what's called the 1928 prayer book, and that's the one that a lot of the Anglican churches have used because the other one was used by the Episcopal Church was in 1979, which was much more liberal, kind of left out important things. And but recently, the Anglican Church of North America has just published a new prayer book in 2019 that um, it's. That's, I have a copy right there. Okay. It goes back a lot to the early language of, and the Cramner first set up in his church without the Old English that, that you know that, that can be befuddling to people. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so it, it's a it's, <laughs> it's a way for us to worship together and to uh, to get the most out of our worship service. And and it also it's a handy tool that it has everyone involved. Cause we're all using it together you're not just sitting there as a frozen chosen you know as a bench warmer right but you're involved in the service and uh so that that's why we use the prayer book and um but as you i told you about the order of worship we're not reliant just on it because we also the bible itself is very heavily involved with the lessons that we do each sunday
0: okay yeah so it's kind of like a liturgical service book plus prayers and exactly that kind of
2: thing
1: okay yeah. gotcha plus from an outside perspective it also seems that it kind of helps keep these traditions true and keep them moving forward in time yeah right. plus with, if
0: you have something like that you can compare how the service was done 100 200 years ago and see what has changed or, right. how or what has happened. if,
2: if <laughs> yeah yeah i have some of the old ones that they are so fragile i have to be very careful with them. I mean, because you, you you have to basically have to wear gloves with them because they're they're so so old. Mm-hmm. But um, but it, another point you made is that it also keeps it it keeps the focus on worshiping God and not being entertained. We're not here to entertain you. That's good. You know. Yeah. And we're here to corporately worship the Lord, and that's that's what we're about. And if you need to be entertained, uh, you probably need to go somewhere else.
1: All you right. have a TV at home. This isn't TV. <laughs> yeah.
2: As I heard a friend of mine say one time, some of these these big, more non-traditional church, he referred to them as six flags over Jesus, you know. <laughs> all right.
1: <laughs> That's a good one. I have never heard that before.
2: I mean, because you kind of walk in and there's like this, you walk in. It's kind of like when Jesus going into the temple when all the sellers were there,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and you had people changing money and people selling these yeah. doves and people selling lambs and stuff and you go into some of these and you walk in and there's like a, um, um, a kiosk for coffee and there's one for snacks and there's your gift shop and all these things before you and before you get into the church and yeah and then there's like the big band going on so yeah so we try to keep the focus on worshiping God. gotcha
1: all right and for our next question according to your tradition's theological perspective what must one do to be saved
2: excellent question it's very simple that you accept jesus christ as your lord and savior there's there's no working your way to salvation there's a accepting christ and being obedient to him and following his teachings and that is what's done and you you go to you go and you confess your sins you say you know i'm a sinner god have mercy upon me and that i believe that jesus christ is my lord and savior and i believe that he can forgive my sins and through that that i can have eternal life and that is a personal thing that can be done it also can be done some churches it's a public thing um i'll explain to a minute about how kind of how we do that and you asked a question later I think about how do you become a member of the church was kind of part of that but t- uh, traditionally if you you would make this a profession of faith if you like some churches like the Baptist Church or some you make a walk down the aisle and you walk down to the front at the end of the service doing the invitation and the um, you talk to the pastor and you make a profession of faith then and then he makes that announcement to the church and at that time you can be voted on to be a member or not Mm-hmm. And then you're baptized. Well, in our church, if you're an infant, um, we we baptize infants. Or if you're coming late, a latecomer to the church uh, and haven't been baptized, then we would baptize you. If you're coming into church um, and haven't already been baptized in another church, another uh, Christian church, then that's accepted. Um, but then once, but the bottom line is accepting Christ as your Savior and it, and and it's just simply that, to accept him as Lord. Um, and then there's a process that we can discuss later as far as becoming a member.
1: Okay. Alrighty, and for our next question, what is the role and nuance between faith and works and one's faith journey?
2: Works will not get you saved. Faith is an expression meant that you you have faith in those things that you cannot see and you trust in those things that you do not understand because Christ has said that you you're not going to understand everything. Some will be revealed to you later at different times and he even did that with the disciples that it was an incremental process that he did with them and they were even up to the point of him dying they still at some points did not fully grasp who he was and what he was about until afterwards um and so he takes us step by step in that and so in doing that that we trust in him and that that's the faith that we have now the expression of that faith that we have is our works it's the fruits of the spirit that because of this change that happens to us when we accept christ as lord and savior (laughs) that then we have this need this desire to do good things because of one for thanksgiving that what, God, what Christ has given, done for us. And that this joy we have that we want to share it with people. And I'd, I'd like to just read a passage of Scripture here. Um, this is in James, which I think is really good. And it's from James two fourteen through 26, where uh, in this section is encaptioned, faith without works is dead. It said, what good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be known To be shown you a foolish person and that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Adam believed God, excuse me, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. And so what that means is that you cannot work your way to heaven. There are a lot of good people who do a lot of good things But unfortunately, if they don't accept Christ as Savior, then they will end up with the same fate as the ones who are just as evil. They they will not, they will experience what's called the second death. As Christians, we believe that you have the one death, and that's your physical death, but you have life eternal in Christ, in heaven with him. But the ones who are unbelievers who reject Jesus Christ as Lord they have the second death and this means that they will physically die but then they will stand before God at the judgment and at that time instead of saying well done my good and faithful servant coming to meet my to the rewards that I have for you it will be depart from me you workers of iniquity I do not know you and you are cast out and that is called the second death so what we have to do is to expression of our faith is to do good to others. And Jesus, as i use used this a couple times before today, Jesus says that the two greatest commandments are to love God first and foremost and to love our neighbor as thyself. And how do we express our faith for our neighbor? By doing good works to them, by meeting their needs, by caring for them. Those that are hungry we feed them and Jesus even gave an example that he said um, when they were asking him about um, who is my neighbor and he said you know it's it's the one that if you um, if you feed the hungry if you clothe the naked if you comfort those who are ill if you visit the ones who are in prison then you're doing the same thing as you do for me. But if you don't do these things, then you it's the same as you have not done them to me. And so what he's meaning by that is that if we wanna show our love to Christ, we do it by showing how we treat others. He doesn't need our, our good works. You know, he's, he's, he's got everything. He, he doesn't, he wants us to be able to reflect that, him, reflect him in others. And it's often said that for a Christian, that we may be the only Christ that someone may see because mm-hmm. they've never physically came in contact or, or experienced Jesus Christ. Maybe they've never been in church. They've never heard the Bible. But if they can see that in you, then that's you're doing that same as if you were doing it for Jesus Christ. And, and I've always heard that one of the worst indictments that a Christian could ever have against them is hmm, I did not know they were Christians, because their life didn't reflect it, so faith and works goes hand in hand, but faith but works without faith is is you know is of no benefit, and faith without works, then you need to check out and see if your faith is really true or not, if it's not being productive, if it's not showing fruit then you really need to reevaluate things.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, one thing that was told to me when I was younger was, God can work through you, but you can't work to God.
2: You can't work your way to heaven, that's absolutely correct. He reaches down to us, we don't reach up to him. We reach out to him, but we can't reach up. You know, the people in Babel, remember the story of the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament? They were trying to work their way to heaven by building a tower, you see what happened to them.
0: Yeah, Um, so I I think last week when we were interviewing Pastor John at the Lutheran Church, he kind of said it, he put it kind of similar to the way you put it, that basically um, works are the result of your faith, but they are not salvific in themselves, basically. This is the long and short of it, pretty much. Okay, so obviously um, sin is bad. What does sin do to people?
2: To me, I think the best example I can use is sin is like a cancer. And what happens if a cancer is untreated? It grows, it metastasizes, and it spreads through the body. And this is what sin does to people. You know, um, the problem is. All humanity is infected by this particular disease we call sin. And sin, the origin of sin was pride. It was Lucifer, the angel of light, who was prideful and thought that he should be the one on the throne and not God. And so his rebellion and that of one-third of the angels um, who went with him um, were cast out and they ended up, as he says, roaming, roaming like a ravening lion upon the earth. And so Satan, his mission until, and he knows what his doom is, he knows that. But his thing is he's trying to take as many people with him as he can and try to populate hell as with many people and try to cause as much disturbance and, and, um, and difficulty within the humanity uh, that he can. And it's his rebelliousness. Well, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve who were living in this perfect utopia, they were infected. Satan came to them as a serpent and beguiled Eve to eat this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, which they had been. That was the one tree they were told they could not eat from. They could eat from anything else. uh, But they... He presented it to them with pride. Well, if you eat this, he knows that you'll be like him. You'll be like God and you'll know all these things. And they were thinking, well, that's great. You know, we want to be like God then instead of look what he's provided for us. And so there was that rebellion right then. And then the second part of it was not owning up to it. That one of the biggest thing, things that Adam did was that he blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. Instead of owning up to their, you know, God, we goofed up. I'm sorry. But that pre- presented itself. And so man has basically lived in, with a rebellion against God since then. And, and this is how sin is manifested for itself. And it builds upon itself that it, it starts with uh, this, this either pride or this rebelliousness of that I want to do things my way. You can't tell me what to do. And that's the core, basically, of all sin. And what does it do to people? It separates them from God. God, due to His holiness, due to His perfect, lack of a better word, perfectness, um, He does not and cannot look upon sin because of that. And so, in so doing, we are separated from Him. And we are no longer in communion with him um, in that sinful state. and we've been, But we've been given a remedy. And that is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came to the earth with the sole purpose of giving man a cure for this, for this um, contagious disease of sin. And this thing that was destroying man. Um, and that was his death on the cross In paying the price for our sin, that all that we have to do is to come to him, confess our sins with a true uh, and uh, contrite heart, with a brokenness of our spirit, knowing that, God, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot live without you. I need you in my life. And in so doing, then we are cured. That sin is basically cut out, and then we can be restored. The only problem we have is that man continues to sin. And we are sinful in our nature. Um, I mean, if you look at little kids, little kids are precious. But you look at two or three little two-year-olds, put them in the same room together, and there's one toy. There is not an attitude of, oh, please, let me share this with you here. I want you to play with this toy. It's mine, mine, it's mine and then you'll see them slapping and hitting each other and biting each other and everything. And that seems to be that nature of, of man. But fortunately, thanks be to God, we have a cure, and that cure is Jesus Christ for this sin.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that was good. Yeah, this is a very fleshed-out answer.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, I had something I wanted to say. Oh, um, i i have an episode that i want to do in the future that is basically this question what is sin and what does it do to people and, and the main thesis you touched on several times in this interview is basically the ultimate sin is pride and wanting to be your own god and um uh, yeah I, I gotta flesh that out and work that out as like an actual episode we'll do at some point but yeah um so as as for the next question uh and you you kind of answered this a little bit earlier but um how do you view the Eucharist or communion uh and what implications does that view hold so i met- you mentioned earlier uh that you hold uh the view of consubstantiation so i, I guess you've kind of already answered the first half um what are the implications of that what does communion do when people partake in
2: it well we'll to start with communion was what jesus instituted is what there are seven sacraments in the church there are two that jesus in, uh, instituted um and, the, and these are the two that are obligatory for all christians to to have and the first that he instituted was baptism and he did this by his own example himself if you remember when john the baptist baptized him mm-hmm. even though he was without sin he wanted Jesus has never asked us to do anything that he himself would not do. And he has always set those examples for us. That was one of the purposes of his being physically on earth was to set examples and to give us a role model, a benchmark, if you will, to follow. He didn't just sit up in heaven and say, you need to do this. You need to do that. Do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. He came down and said, this is how you live. This is how you treat people. This is how you act. And so he he and honoring God the Father and being obedient to him in all ways, so he first set up baptism, and then at the Lord's Supper, which was the last supper he had before his um, crucifixion, he instituted the Lord's Supper, and this was to be done as a reminder of what he is doing for us, that he is shedding his body and his blood for us in order that we may have salvation and so. For us, communion is is almost it's a spiritual of him reaching through from heaven, and and his presence is there through the spiritually through the bread and the wine, through the wafer and the the wine, um, of a reminder that. I have shed i broke my body has been broken for you it has been given up for you my blood has been shed for you in order that you can have eternal life that you can have salvation and this is biblical this follows the biblical teachings and he says we are to do this until he returns so this is why we do it because we every time we come together it's We do preach, we do teach, but the focus and the highlight of our service every Sunday is communion, reminding us because humans are terrible at remembering things, and so this is a reminder. I did this for you, in order that you can have eternal life. This is what I sacrificed, and He suffered the most cruel death that you can possibly imagine, the crucifixion on a cross, and the and the. The, what he went through with the torture with being scourged and scourge is not merely like taking a whip and whipping somebody it is a piece of leather that has pieces of bone and metal jagged that are attached in these, in these thongs off of this whip and it, when it whips and pulls back it yanks, out, it yanks out hunks of flesh and just basically eviscerates somebody and that's what he went through before he was even crucified for us. So this is why it's so important to remember through communion what he did for us and what how dear he holds us that he was willing to do that. That even as he hung on the cross, he was doing it for those people who were there before him, those people who had lived before him, and the people to come. Me, you, you, and you. He did it for us and for every person who ever is born on this earth. So that's what it is. Now some churches, as we said, the the Catholic church holds, that this literally becomes the flesh and blood of Christ, which is not scriptural at all. Jesus never said that this is going to be my actual flesh and blood that you're eating. I mean, that sounds almost like cannibalism. But what it is, it's a spiritual transformation that, that when I'm going through the service of Holy Communion, and you know, in placing my hands upon the the bread and over the wine, that it is being consecrated, it's set apart to be spiritually representative of His body and blood. Now, in Baptist churches and whatnot, it's more of just a memorial. There's nothing. It's a piece of cracker and a glass of Welch's juice, um, but and it's only done like usually like once a quarter uh, but it doesn't seem to have that same significance of, of the presence of Christ spiritually there reaching out mm-hmm. through and one of the things if you'll notice the, the altar table back in the church that is representative of the mercy seat where the Holy of Holies and you remember in the temple in Jerusalem the Holy of Holies was separated by a curtain and the chief priest could only go in once a year to make sacrifices for people to atone for people's sins. And they even would tie a rope around his ankle in case he died in there. If he was not ceremonially clean before he went in there, he would, the risk that he would be struck dead. And so they, instead of them risking going in and getting struck dead if they tried to pull him out, they had a rope on his ankle and he would pull him out. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, we read in Scripture that the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the people split it was not split bottom to top it was split top to bottom and what it did is it removed that barrier between us and christ us and god so that we can approach him you don't have to have a priest to go approach god you can approach him personally and so when we come to the altar rail and i'm standing there is is jesus's hands basically i'm i'm his stand in for him I'm distributing the bread like Jesus did at the Lord's Supper and I'm distributing the wine like he did at the Lord's Supper that he is spiritually reaching out from that Holy of Holies from the altar, from the mercy seat, out to the people as he continues to minister him from that one sacrifice that he made on the cross. It's a continuous giving, a flowing forth from that one sacrifice to the people throughout the ages. And so that's one of the significance that I think that me makes for our view of what the Eucharist, or also called Communion, or called the Lord's Supper, is um, for our people, um, you know. And like I mentioned, there are seven sacraments. There, the first two was um, baptism and Eucharist, and then the other ones. And just in my mind's not weak, I just want to make sure I don't skip one of them that it's confirmation which we'll talk about in a little bit. Reconciliation or confession, this is where you can kind of go into the confessional and but you don't have to be in a, you can do it personally with me uh, we can sit and talk or whatever unction is when you, or sometimes it's called last rites unction is where if you're visiting the sick and you're anointing them and praying for them or if they're they're ready to leave this world you can go and, and minister to them and maybe give them if they're able give communion before they pass away and pray with them so that's one and then marriage and then holy orders and ordin- or ordination and all of those are optional except for for communion and baptism those two were instituted by christ and said this is what we're to do you know getting wet will not save you it's being obedient to his teachings and doing that and it's significant that you are dying to your old self under the water and coming back up as a new person in Christ. So those two are that. The others, not everybody's going to be married. Not everybody's going to be a, a deacon or a priest or a pastor. Um, not everyone may be able to have um, um, unction or, or last rites uh, just because of the situation. And um, and not everyone who is a Christian is going to necessarily be confirmed. That's just a practice we do in the liturgical churches. So those are optional, but the other two are are the ones that are mandatory.
0: Okay. So the your view of the communion is kind of like a middle ground between the Catholic view and the Zwinglian view where where it's like it's not literally being transformed, but it's also not at all symbolic. It's kind of something in the middle with the a spiritual, spiritual
2: presence. manifestation. Okay. All right. And it's, if you want to say, supernatural.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: From Christ, not by me. Right, yeah.
1: (laughs) All right, and for our next question, if God is truly omniscient, do we really have free will?
2: And I would say absolutely yes. It was probably the greatest gift secondary to Jesus Christ and grace that we were given is that you know god did not want us to be automatons as i've used that term before but he wanted us to be individuals in in creation you know man was the man's creation was different from the rest of the animals and the rest of the plants the rest of the the planet stars everything else everything else was spoken into existence by his word let there be light There'd there be like, water, yeah. There be land, the stars and all this. But with man, he took dust and he formed man and he breathed his spirit into man, which separates man from every other entity of creation, because with that we have a spirit within us. We have a soul that is not possessed by any other creature. And so that makes us in the image and likeness of God. God is not physical. He's spirit. But we are created in his image and and with his spirit. And we are given a mind that is more developed than any other mind, a brain of any other creature. And so we were able to get, have this ability to think and to reason and to decide and determine. And so he gave us those those gifts to use and he encouraged us to use them. The, you know, God does know everything. He knows what will happen to everybody as it says in scripture that he knows the number of hairs on your head. You've got a lot of them. He, um, and he knows every time a bird falls out of a nest, he knows all these things. He knows what will happen to us. But just because he knows does not mean that he's, he's conducting us in the way, you know, in managing us like a master puppeteer who's controlling everybody. But it's, he, he has this awareness of being omniscient. But at the same time, we have choice. And with that, um, that can be good or bad. But we have choices that we can make. That we can take um, the, the right road, or we can take the wrong road. Um, it's up to us. God knows what the outcome will be. We don't. But we are able to um, to 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 conduct our lives and make the choices we make. And uh, fortunately, we're also able to correct those choices <laughs> when we've made the wrong ones. And uh, and having the intelligence to be able to do so. <clears throat> He does have a way of helping to guide us. And some people think of this as the conscience. Some people think it's that, you know, you got the little angel on one shoulder and the little devil on the other shoulder whispering in your ears. But Jesus, before he left, uh, before he ascended into heaven, wanted the people. Those followers to know that they were not being abandoned. Here, they had just gone through his his losing him to death and thinking uh, all is lost, and then he he's resurrected and he's back with them, and then he's telling them he's ready. He's going to be leaving, and they're thinking, "Wait a minute, we just got you back. What are we going to do?" And he says, "I'm not going to leave you alone. I will send another." And so he sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is there to to indwell in us, to guide us and to direct us. It's to give us encouragement. Sometimes it's to correct us. And you feel that in your conscience. You know that when you do something that it's not right, even though you might try to justify it, rationalize it, you know down in your inner being that this is either right or wrong. And you have either a peace or a disease, not a disease, but a a lack of peace in your in yourself, and so this is the Holy Spirit there. But He's also there to comfort us, to some to to help us and to guide us. But He's not directing us. He's not saying, "Today, this is the itinerary. Uh, you're going to have breakfast here, and then you're going to go do this, and then you're going to do that, and you're going to do that." But He is to kind of nurture us along, and it's kind of like if you, th- you three of y'all don't have children, uh, mm. but with with little children, they've <laughs> had their own minds but we as parents guide them and direct them they're still going to make their choices but we can we know what's best for them and god does that for us that he knows what's best so he will try to guide us and direct us but it comes down to the bottom line we make our own decision good or bad yeah
0: so you so basically you can do you can do whatever but at the end of the day God still knows what you're going to do. And that doesn't mean that he uh, necessarily programmed you to do it that way. It's just he just he just knows there's a there's a yeah, I think it's that the um, asking this question several times to people um, has kind of made that a little bit clearer is that like, you know, God didn't program us because he's because he's omniscient he set up everything it doesn't mean that he programmed you to be a certain way just because he knows what you're going to do doesn't mean that he caused you to do it basically there's kind of a it's it's hard to nuance for people nowadays he
2: gives you gifts to talents to be able to use and he wants you to use those he knows what your life choices will be But, you know, a good example, if you think about it, Jesus Christ was fully God. He was fully man, but he was fully God. How many times do you read in Scripture where he's sitting there teaching or or giving a parable to folks and talking about things, and he knows exactly what these other, the the Pharisees are thinking. Mm -hmm. And he says, this is what you're (laughs) thinking, and this is, and then he'll, you know, and they're kind of like, wait a minute. You know, he's like a mind reader. You know, well, he knows everything. You know, it's no secrets there. You can't hide anything from him. Um, but it didn't change how they reacted, even though he would he could call them on it. You know, so God does know all these things, but He allows us the freedom to make decisions. You know, if if that if if we were automatons, Adam and Eve would never have had the fall. They would never have. Go, listen to the serpent and going after the fruit on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They would not have. They would. We would all still be living living in Eden, you know, if if they were to procreate. And the thing is, you know, um, one thing I wanted to back up. I just thought came to my head. If you will. Okay. you asked me about sin, <clears throat> the other thing about what is sin is sin is a death sentence because when man was created, man was to be immortal. Man was not to die. Man was not to ever be sick. Man was not to suffer in any way. Man was to live in a perfect relationship with God in which he would come spiritually. And we read that he would walk with them in the garden in the cool of the evening. And so that was to be that relationship. And so sin severed that. And so what life is for us is a period of time, a season, until we have to pay the price like physical death because of the sin. I sorry I digress, but that's okay. That's a point I just remember wanted to make and I
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well real quick, I I think the kind of parent child uh, analogy analogy is a really good one because when I was a kid, I know our mom would say, Hey, I need you to do this before you do anything else. Mm-hmm. I've got to go to work. I will be back at this time. She knew immediately <laughs> that I'm going to wait till about 30 minutes. So she gets home <laughs> to do that. And so just like I have free will to say, go plan the game, watch some TV before I get anything done. We have the free will to do what we want, even though the outcome's already known. So I right. think that's a, good way to kind of bring it into more earthly terms because i know that a lot of people can get hung up on that
2: yeah you know and he knows that if you do these things this is what the outcome is going to be kind of use your analogy with the parent there you know if you're a little johnny and i I tell you don't touch that burner over there it's hot it will burn you now i have a foreknowledge of what will happen if you do that i'm not (laughs) equating myself with god but sure enough what happens when you touch that burner It's hot. (laughs) You get burned, and you have pain. And, you know, so we've been given directions and guidance and and God, but just much more on a greater supernatural level. He knows what is going to become of us and what our choices are.
1: All righty. And for our next question, do you think religion and science are at odds?
2: Not necessarily. I think it can. People can make it at odds um i thought about that question a lot i was contemplating that last night and looking over these you know christians often have a differing opinion as to the creation of the world as far as the minutiae exactly how it happened you know Um, most like myself choose to embrace the biblical account um, of the seven days of creation but there could very well as some said been A big bang, and I like what this one uh, friend of mine told said. Said it could have been, you know. God said, "Let it be," and bang, it happened. I mean, He spoke the world into existence. Mm -hmm. He could have very well have done it. That process, we weren't there. Right. I mean, He could have very well over. I mean, time does not matter. It's not something that God has. He doesn't work in time, man. Has time. Time is part of that limited life time we have. It's part of that death sentence, if you would. I hate to sound morbid. That tick tock, tick tock. You have so many days, and that's it. So he, he could, he, for him, he, he's eternal. He has always been. He always will be. So time is no reference for him, as the scripture says that for him, a day can be like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. So. Were that seven days of creation, 24 hours three you know, consecutively for seven days? Or was it seven periods of time? Of seven developmental intervals of time? It could have well been, you know? I like to just keep it simple, you know? Follow Genesis. And <clears> a lot of, <throat> even now, archeologists and stuff are finding that a lot of things in Genesis that scientists have said were not true are having to go back and say, uh, they might be right. We're finding more fossil evidence. We're finding more things, you know, confirming the flood and all these that happen, you know, um, worldwide. But anyway, so it could have been that. There could have been that. There's some believe, some Christians believe in old earth theory, where like millions and billions of years. Some believe in new earth of 6,000 years, if you follow the biblical account in scripture mm-hmm. and you, the genealogies Adding and up follow numbers, through. Yeah. Um, but we all agree that God had his hand in it. Mm-hmm. That's the key. God. Was the one who started it, and he's the one that created it. Um, most of us don't believe necessarily in evolution. I don't believe that man came up from a lesser animal. I believe, like I said before, that, God was, that man was created by God in his image uniquely from all the rest of creation. But there is an aspect of, of evolution in all of life, and that is adaptability. We adapt to our environments. Or you die. Species, whether plants or animals, that can't adapt to changes in environment will die out. They either adjust and adapt, evolve, or they don't. <laughs> and so there is that co- component of it. Um, you know, so science and, and religion do not have to be at odds. The, the greatest science scientists of the ages, early on. religious people the Roman Catholic Church had one of the greatest sciences departments if you would with um, with um, telescopes and with uh, their observatories and all these uh, uh, philosophers Um, Newton was a was a was a Christian you know he and here's the one who developed you know physics and and all these concept events mathematical concepts was a Christian there was uh, many many more who were Christians but yet who were leaders of science, so it's only man who re- rebels against God that can put science in in contrast or in 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 odds with Christianity, our religion. So, pretty much, there does not have to be an odd at odds between the two. It's pretty much whether man chooses to make it that way or not.
1: Yeah yeah i'm glad you bring up the big bang because i think during the last interview i can't remember if it was me or the pastor bringing that up but don't limit a limitless being right yeah.
2: right
0: yeah that we've um this is this is one of those things we discussed uh we did a two-parter on um uh, the origins of life in the universe and going through um the religious theories and the um secular theories kind of comparing and contrasting strengths and weaknesses and um, I incorporated arguments for God's existence with that um, one of them being uh, that basically I, my mind is blanking on what exactly I think it's the cosmological argument basically um, if you believe in the Big Bang you believe that all time and matter came into existence at one point in time And that's as far as science can go that's all it can do is tell you that that happened and and there was a catalyst for it right it it cannot infer what that catalyst was because there's literally no way of going back and knowing and so where the cosmological argument picks up is the cause of that was something strong enough and intelligent enough to create everything in existence which is God
2: you know and you know that to me it actually takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in creation because I mean you're basically saying that if I have from a probability perspective it's far
0: less likely that all this stuff just happened randomly
2: as opposed yeah. to there's an intent to it Yeah, that'd be like you know you had a bunch of amoebas and and they turned into metal and through the process of billions of years it became a 747 you know? Yeah. Um, and so to me, it, it does require more faith. And plus, the fact, that something you touched on there, is that those who deny God's existence or, and God's uh, part in creation hit a blind spot. They can only go so far and they can't explain beyond that point. Whereas with creation and with uh, God and Christianity, we have a defining moment. Now, do we understand God? Can you wrap your mind around the fact of God being infinite? Man cannot grasp infinity. We can think about it. We can do mathematical formulas for it. But we really have a limitation on our ability to grasp the infinite, something that is unending. Our universe is excuse, Our universe is infinite. It has no boundaries. Now, does can you wrap your mind around that it it it, it never ends? Well, it's got to go somewhere. That's our mind thinking, but mm-hmm. it's there. You know, it's just it is continuous, and God is continuous. He doesn't age. He's always been. Can we understand that? Not in the least. So it goes back to faith faith in, in accepting and understanding that which you cannot understand i don't fully grasp the understanding of electricity but i know that if i flip that switch on if i paid my bill it's going to have lights you know if i get into that elevator and go up a floor or two i've got faith that that thing is going to carry me up there and not drop me out you know those are aspects of there's faith in all aspects of our life why do we have trouble believing in something that maybe we cannot personally see, but that the evidence is all around us that he's there, that he is working in our lives. He continues to work in our lives. You know, as a, when I was working as a nurse, I even during times when I probably maybe didn't inherit believe in God or express a faith, I could see things that were beyond my explanation, I saw a person who was in a car wreck who had their spine severed, who was paralyzed from here down on a ventilator, about six months later, walking out of the hospital. Beyond all medical explanation, he healed. He regained all function, and his spinal cord was not bruised or what; It was severed. Wow. He walked out of the hospital, and I remember because he came by to to thank some or different folks and I happened to be sitting in the cafeteria when he walked through and I about choked on my lunch. Cause I was like, that can't be, you know, there, and there are other things, you know, and life itself is, is just miraculous, you know, mm-hmm. how a person is created, how that person and what is so unique is that none of us are alike. The two of you are twins. Y'all shared the same birth experience and you're totally different from each other. You have a lot of similarities, but you're different. There is only one of you, there's only one of you, and of all the billions and billions of people, there's not a duplicate. And that tells me that something greater than us had a hand in it.
1: That was a good response. Extremely great response. Yeah. All right, and for our next question, in your opinion, how should Christians interact with politics?
2: We should be active and vocal. And it's our science, excuse me, it's our silence over the past 50 to 70 years that I think has led us to where we are in the world now, in our country and in our, this nation and, and throughout the world. Because it used to be that at the founding of our country, the greatest exponents for liberty, for freedom, for the establishment of this nation came out of pulpits. They even, there was examples where the preacher or priest would be sitting there and when he finished his sermon, he took off his vestments, that's the clothing that we wear with the, the alb and the cassock and, mm-hmm. and uh, different things. He took it off and he was wearing a, a uniform and he got called them to, the men for them to come up and let's make a militia and let's go fight. That's pretty political. Yeah. You know, and there has always been this voice from the church it Has been, the nation was founded on Judea Christian principles, even though people are, you know, now in this revisionist <laughs> history and whatnot are saying, Oh, that would never happen. That was never true. That none of those uh, founding fathers were believers. Well, I gave the example of, Thomas Jefferson who was not exactly a believer in Christ, but he used Judeo-Christian principles in his development of his Declaration of Independence that he wrote and in the establishment of this nation and the Constitution and everything else. John Jay, who was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, said that what we do is based on the Bible. Without the Bible we will not survive. He, a quote from him was, the Bible was the best of all books, for it is the word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. Continue to read it and regulate your life by its precepts. This came from the Supreme Court. You put that, would not hear that from the Supreme Court today. The Supreme Court has embraced things that have been in, you know, in the violation of life, of the unborn. You know, it's we have so far walked away from that. But I find that most of the problems we have can be laid at the foot of those who abandoned the pulpit and not speaking out politically about what this nation should do or should not do and how it should be governed or not be governed. That you know, that was very loud and focusing and vocal on the needs of the people about about the eradication of slavery came out of the pulpit. Where do you think the abolitionists came from? It came from the pulpit. It was those leaders were Christians who spoke out against it. Those who talked about the personal rights and freedoms of individuals came out of the pulpit. That if we follow Jesus' teachings and do what he tells us to do, then we can be a great nation that will be blessed by God and so, as I said, John, for John Jay, the, the Bible was his benchmark in the decisions he made. And for most part, everything that we have in, for the beginning of the Constitution and the, um, the uh, Declaration of Independence used as their guide scripture and writings from earlier theologians and whatnot um, in developing what we would have as this democracy or this republic democracy um, for the United States. And it is said that we would either rise or fall depending on our relationship and obedience to god and i just had a note here um if we reject god and this nation will fall and it is our task to be biblically correct not politically correct if, a, if the pulpit is muzzled then we are not doing our job regardless of the threats and one of the things i'll point out it was um Johnson Lyndon Johnson, who passed a law in the fifties that was trying to attempt to muzzle the the pulpit, the, the preachers, that they should not speak out against political entities or politicians or whatnot, and he tried to prevent that. Well, fortunately, not all have been obedient to that, but a lot. But that, and along with some other desires to try to be politically correct and cool and hip and with it with, the, with, with society in the 60's and this, the revolution um, actions that were happening then um, we have fallen you know, many churches have taken the position that oh we're not supposed to get into politics that's a separate thing we're just supposed to talk about souls well if the government's affecting the life of people it's affecting their souls and so we should be vocal in in our position and not in my opinion but in the position that christ has laid out for us and that is to spread the gospel of the good news of jesus christ and all that that entails
0: that was an informative answer
1: yeah
0: um what would you say because you did kind of allude to some people that are like this what would you say to certain people that will say separation of church and state, you know, you need to keep your political opinions and your religious opinions separate. I feel like that's kind of censorship on uh, just trying to get you to not act on your religious
2: values. Well, first off, the, the, (coughs) the, the, the thing that they throw up about the separation of church and state was a fallacy. It was never part of the Constitution. It was a letter that Jefferson had with a Baptist pastor about a position, about the, the separation of church and state, where the church, I mean, the state, could not tell the church how to act and what to do as far as their expression of their religious faith. That's what that was. That there was this wall to separate that the church, the government, could not control the church. There was not to be an official national church. That people were able to believe and practice their religion. According to to um, to their guidance, you know, uh, from God, and that they have totally twisted this thing around to say that oh, there's a separation of church and state, and that the the church cannot have any involvement in the in this in the state. Well, that's absolutely incorrect. It was the other way around. That the the state cannot have control over the church, but the church had every right to have, you know. To make opinions and to express those opinions uh, in trying to influence what happened within the, the government, to keep the government from becoming roughshod, to become another, you know, um, fascist state or whatever, which we are rapidly seem to be heading towards, a type of fascism in our in our country, which you are muffling, muzzling people, and you are not allowing people to have freedom of speech and not allowing them to um, to um, to Follow their beliefs, but that we are had to try to be you know politically correct and and that the majority should have to submit to the minority. You know, that you have a few people with a battalion, that, that that that's supposed to be the one that everybody kowtows to, and and so the other way around. So, this separation of church and state is absolutely incorrect, it was never intended for that. Because, I mean, at the same time, what if Jefferson have said that you know that, that they. Christianity was the best way to govern following the precepts of of the Judeo-Christian religion was the best way to govern people, to have fairness for people, to have where you have a quality of life, that you have this life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was due to what was expressed in the Judeo-Christian values, which does nothing but to uplift man and not to tear man down so what what happened with madeline murray o'hara and getting the bible kicked out of schools and out of the government and whatnot has led nothing but to the detriment of society that we've gone to become a really crude harsh and callous society and that that's what has been the result of those actions but there again i unequivocally state the the fallacy of the separation of church and state is what is expressed by most people is absolutely incorrect.
0: Yeah, we've kind of skirted around because when you talk about certain religious topics, inevitably politics is going to come up at some point. Um, So we've kind of skirted around political themes. And at some point we're probably going to address these head on because with the, the idea with the show is kind of comparing um, a Christian perspective with the secular perspective and uh, the implications of those beliefs. And obviously, if you're a Christian, that's going to have some form of impact on your political views as well. So that's kind of like a, a teaser for episodes we're going to be doing later on. Well, in ahead, political
2: perspe- positions, I mean, <clears throat> this— I was listening to a a, a priest who's a Roman Catholic priest. That was talking that we should all be very active politically, and we use as our guide Scripture. We, we use as our teach their teachings of Jesus Christ it, to help us in making our decision. We cannot, you know, um, compromise our faith for popularity. That something is either inherently wrong or it's not you know a, you know abortion is inherently wrong it's the murder of a child of a life even though it has not drawn breath yet it's still it's not going to be anything but a human being you know it's not going to you know if you have if you get pregnant and have a child it's not going to possibly turn into a frog or a dog or a cat it's a human being and so what you've done is you've terminated the life of a human and that is wrong, so there should be no compromise on that, you know. I know sometimes these things happen in terrible situations of rape or incest, whatnot, but still there's a life there that needs to be protected. So what we're called upon as Christians is to use Scripture as our guide in making our decisions politically. And, you know, it's not always, you know, easy because sometimes it's almost like choosing between the lesser of two evils you know you really don't want either candidate you know but which is the one that is the least contrary to scripture and to to, you know as opposed to one who is just absolutely blatant in your face against everything and, and embracing things that are just absolutely ungodly and inhumane and so those are the things but we do have to have an active role in that
0: So to kind of wrap up on this topic and and a lot of the things that we've been talking about, what is one general thing that you think Christians in America should work on?
2: Sharing the gospel, reaching out to people, welcoming people, and not acting like a private club. In other words, having the doors open and welcoming to all who come in just like Christ did. He was not, you know... You know picking and choosing who he interacted with who he associated with and you know the the pharisees and the sadducees and the the, the religious leaders which was the for the most part the government of judea even though they were under roman rule um were the the government that he and he was in their face all the time you know and he you know he was um he was always having to 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 address the the things that these these Jewish leaders were doing these religious leaders were doing, but he was very open to people you know one of the most beautiful examples i I can think of in scripture was uh there was a woman who was called in adultery I mean just redheaded flat caught in the middle of in you know um, right there in the middle of it and she was drug out and and by According to to Mosaic law, the penalty for adultery was to be stoned to death. And, and so he was there, and he was watching this, and all these men were standing around with their stones getting ready to stone her. And, um, and they asked him, you know, what, what do you think we should do with this person? And he says, what does the law say? They said, well, that she should be stoned to death. He says, okay, you're right. That's what it says whoever is without sin cast the first stone. And they were like (laughs) looking at each other and slowly each one of them dropped their rock or dropped their stone and kind of slunk off, you know? And then eventually it was just he and the woman there with a couple of his followers. And, uh, and he looked at her and he said, where are your accusers? And she's like, they've gone. He says, go and sin no more. And he picked her up and lifted her up out of the dirt. That's the way we should be treating people, you know. We don't point out their sins, but we say, you know, Jesus loves you. He's got He's offering this for you freely. It's yours. Let me share it with you. It's a good thing. All right, so.
0: As we're wrapping up, um, we've covered a lot of things. If someone wanted to join your church, what would be the process of becoming a member?
2: Okay. Well, you know, after welcoming them to the church and you know, attending services and, and kind of getting to know them, and then um, if they uh, express a desire, you know, first we just find out, you know, well, have you been baptized? And if they say yes, you're like, well, in, in what church were you baptized? Uh, just to confirm that, that like I said before, that it was, you know, done correctly in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, which is the way it was done when Jesus was baptized. Um, and if that's, then we'll say, do you desire to become a member of this church? And uh, if they said yes, then, and if I'd say, well, have you been confirmed? Have you been confirmed in another church? And it could be either a Lutheran church or you could be uh a Roman Catholic Church, or it could be an Episcopal or Anglican Church if you because uh, other churches you typically don 't do confirmation and what confirmation means is that first we have some classes with them, and we teach them this is what we believe we don 't want you coming in this blindly we want you to understand that we believe you know in the gospel that we believe um, Um, in the creed we have three creeds that we use which is a statement of faith is all it is some churches say well we don't use creeds creeds, but they'll have a statement of faith well that's what it is it says "You know, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost and we go on through the, the creeds and we have one that we use pretty much every Sunday if we're not doing communion we have one that's a little bit shorter the one we use for Sundays with communion is called the Nicene Creed and then the one without communion is the Apostles Creed and then we have one that is a very long creed that has to do with the Trinity uh, that we use occasionally uh, and it's called the Athanasian Creed and it is one of the best explanations but it is very lengthy and detailed about the Trinity which is something that so many people including myself can fully wrap their mind around how something can be three in one but so we have that once they come to understand the way our church is governed, the way we worship, what our core beliefs are then if they already, then we will make a time when the bishop would come to our church, and then they would come before the bishop, and this is where you make your public profession of faith. And this is what differs between, like with the Baptist church, where you walk down the aisle right then and and talk to the pastor and, and get voted on or whatever, but what we do is that the bishop would receive you, he would lay his hands on you, he would pray for you, he would anoint you with oil. And then he introduces you to the church. This is brother so and so or sister so and so is a new member, and uh, let us all enjoy them. And instead of voting, we don't vote. You just, you know, we acclamation. You know, say we. There's some say um, some part of the the, the confirmation service that has where the people are involved in that and making affirmations, and then at the end we just basically kind of applaud and welcome, and that's how you become a member. Of the church,
0: okay, it's been it's good.
2: So it's it's not less kind of something you touched on. It's not just an emotional response that I'm sitting back in the pew and the preacher then got on my toes and I'm feeling guilty and I'm gonna head down to the front because mm-hmm. a lot of times you don't have a clue as to what those people are believing. All you know is that you felt this need to make an altar call and walk down, which is I'm not saying anything wrong with that. Please understand, but. You're not fully informed, and what we're doing is to make sure that you know exactly what we do because there's no secrets. It's not like a hidden club that you've got to know the secret handshake or anything else like that. It's just this is what we believe, and if you accept that, then please join us. All right. Yeah.
1: right. I'm glad you touched on the emotional response because as humans, emotions are fickle. They are very, very fickle. Yeah. And so relying upon those can get you in some major trouble if you don't understand what you've just done. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: May I add one thing? Um, Life as a Christian is not, there is an end point to it. But if you accept Christ as your Savior, you you have not just arrived. You are secured, but it's a journey through your life. You start as a babe, you know, and you grow and you mature as a Christian, you know, and you're going to just, what does a child do when they're trying to learn to walk? They're going to fall down. They're going to skin their knee. They're going to, you know, and then as a teenager, you make probably have some bad decisions, but you, you get those corrected and you continue on. And that's what the journey with Christ is, is walking with him. See, that's important. You don't walk to him, you walk with him and the end point being that you finish your life here on earth and then you're with him for eternity but it's a journey and that journey can have failures faults fault foibles, all this through that but and that's why it's so important to have fellow believers around you to help you in those times when you're in times is john um saint john of the cross said that there are times it's the the night of the, the soul the dark night of the soul in which you go through these periods where you're like god where are you you know if you moved you know it's not him that moved i probably have moved and so you go through these periods of time where you you feel like you know i'm alone i where i'm through a hard time god's not hearing me i feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling well every prayer is ha- heard now will it be answered the way you want it maybe not Billy Graham always said that prayers are offered um, you know, in ways in which God will always hear and respond to us. And then Charles Stanley, if you've heard of him, he's a pastor of a big Baptist church in Atlanta. Um, he, he's a really good teacher of, of Scripture. Uh, but he said that prayers are answered in four ways. Yes, no, no. Maybe, and my will in my is sufficient. And so this means that sometimes we get what we want right away. Sometimes the answer is no, you, you don't need that. It's not good for you. I know the long run, so no. Three, we'll see, just give it time. And But the fourth is my grace and is my will is sufficient. That means just trust in me and you, the right thing will happen to answer your prayer. And uh, you ever heard of that song by Garth Garth Brooke, Brooks, uh, Thank God for Unanswered Prayers? I don't know if you ever listen to country music or not. But he's singing about that. Michael does, I don't. He's singing about this, uh, <clears throat> his love unrequited, his, this girl he was in love with in high school and how it didn't work out. And later he, he married the woman who became his wife. And looking back at that person that he was so in love with, and he was like, thank God for unanswered prayer because he didn't, <laughs> pray into that, that would work out and realizing boy that would have been a real bad mistake looking cuz you know hindsight's 2020.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: And even from a secular viewpoint everything's going to happen the way it needs to. You might not have an answer now but in the future you'll be able to look back and go, "Mmm, glad that didn't work out
0: too well."
1: Yeah. Amen.
0: All right. Well, is there anything else you had, Michael? No, it's been a very informative, very enjoyable. informative, and uh, fruitful interview. I think this is actually going to be our longest episode we've done. Oh, really? Yeah. So it'll it'll be good.
2: Wow.
1: And we appreciate your time. We appreciate you sitting down talking with us. Mm-hmm. And it's been a pleasure. Yeah.
0: Next week we're going to be, or next week on the podcast, you'll be hearing our thoughts on our on the service we're going to attend tomorrow. That sounds. That always confuses me when i say it because like in real life we're going to service tomorrow and we're talking about it tomorrow but Mm -hmm. when people hear this it'll be a week from now so
2: anyway well this is a little book on the catechism for anglicans and you're welcome to have that and if you don't mind i had a a book that this is by um uh, alistair mcgrath he's a Mm -hmm. former atheist and uh it's an interesting book and uh,
0: I've heard of him, but I, I haven't looked into any of this. I would like stuff. to give that. He handed it to David, just so you know, because no, nobody Zavis. knows what happened because it's uh, he just
2: I'm sorry. Yeah, it's OK. People can't see. So we have to it's like the, the book is the twilight of atheism.
0: OK, interesting. I will. Ha- I'm going to make you Y'all read share it. that. I'm going to make you read it. And then we're going to do an episode and you're going to tell me what you learned. Dun, Maybe dun, dun, one day, uh, if I remember. But and yeah. there's
2: another there's another I throw in real quick okay. there's another um, author um, Josh McDowell that's really good and it's uh, evidence that demands a verdict he was an atheist former atheist and, uh, and uh, but this guy you ever heard of um, Christopher Hitchens he's really he's passed away now but he was a really outspoken atheist there's um, a
0: debate I want to show them at some point between him and Craig
2: and Alex and uh, Alexander uh, McGrath um, uh, debated him oh okay gotcha as a former one with a you know
0: having that experience yeah yeah okay cool well it has been good um it's been real it's been fun it's been real fun and uh we will see you guys next week thank you for listening
2: thank you for having me
0: thank you